All right. Hey, good morning, guys. Good to be with you guys. Welcome, welcome. Um, we're in the book of First Kings. First Kings chapter 12. Um, listen, we would love it if you guys could follow along with us. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We would love to get you a Bible. First Kings 12 is where we're at. Why don't you turn there? First Kings chapter 12. Um, while you guys are turning there, I just want to say good morning. What's up? Good to be with you guys. Um, Listen, a few things I want to announce or share with you before we jump right into it. You guys might know this, but um, we are doing, I think this is, is this our sixth time, I don't know, fifth or sixth, um, outreach for the community uh, coming up April 1st. It is called the Egg Extravaganza. Um, I know you guys know this. Maybe you don't know this. So let me just clarify. Um, we do this event once a year. This is not necessarily for the Christians. This is for the community. We want this to be like an evangelistic outreach where we can reach people who live in the area. And we use something like a free event to get them there, to love on them, to invite them to Easter, Good Friday, to share the gospel with them. So let me explain this. On April 1st, Saturday, from 11 to 2, that's when the event is, we will be on this big field uh, next to the school park at the school. The event is right there. That's where our five-year anniversary was. We'll have some bounce houses and food and face painting and all that sort of stuff. Craft stations for the kids. Um, here's the thing. I announced this because we need a lot of help. We probably need about a hundred volunteers to make this happen. The event is from nine to three. All right. So we need like a morning shift, an afternoon shift, or a whole day shift. We'll have lunch. We'll have food provided for the volunteers. Uh, just free lunch, just to bless the volunteers for serving. So you guys, but listen, we really need all hands on deck. So um, a lot of you have done this in the past. We probably had 50, 60, 70 volunteers in the past. We need like about 100. We're expecting over 500 families, maybe about 1,500 people. Um, we're going to, you know, get the word out. So this is only in a few weeks, April 1st, and that is uh, eight days before Easter, which is April 9th. So we just wanted you to be aware of that extravaganza. You're like, okay, what do I do? You go to our website, go to events. You'll see a drop down extravaganza. Click on that, sign up. You can, you can choose parking, security, crafts, a bounce house, whatever. You can pick your station. We would love some help in that area. Um, and also we're going to be doing a training in here on March 24th. Uh, Friday night, March 24th at 6.30, we'll be having a training in here for the extravaganza. All right, so the extravaganza itself, 11 to 2, but 9 to 3, we'll be there for a while if you want to serve. And then um, we'll have a training for the event on March 24th. When's the training for the event? Oh, yeah, thank you. Um, sweet. I actually really need to know. And so 6.30 in here. All right, extravaganza, April 1st. And um, yeah, we're going to have a good Friday service here. We'll have Easter service, obviously. Just so you guys know, we landed on a decision. We're going to do one service, um, and we kind of had to like, kind of do some measurements. We have, I think we have about 300 chairs that we own here, and we're going to try to get like 100 plus more. Um, so moving the chairs to the back. So we're just going to do one service on Easter. Um, we'll have like an egg hunt for the families afterwards. Um, but listen, I'm excited. This is where uh, the resurrection is everything. If Christ is not risen, we are the most men pitiful. Um, that's what Paul said. Um, we, we basically bank everything on the resurrection of Jesus. And I'm very excited. We just got our Easter flyers uh, out. If you want to take some, bring them to work, um, bring them to your neighborhood. We have our Easter flyers out. We'll be also getting more so you can take them. Um, but Easter, we're doing this idea of come and see. Um, I want to look at just Thomas, and I want to look at this idea of bringing your doubts. Bring your doubts like it's okay. So uh, anyways, yes, very excited for this. Easter, April 9th, we'll be here. Um, we'd love for you to grab flyers and uh, just be a part of that. Cool? Yes. Also, know what we need? 
We need a lot of candy. We need a lot of candy. So um, the next few Sundays, if you could bring some candy, that would be a huge blessing. Um, bring it all the way up until March 24th, the training that we'll have here, and we will be using all of the candy ever, everywhere in Deerfield Beach. So please bring the candy. That would be so incredible. And candy's not cheap, so thank you. Appreciate it. We just need candy. Um, all right, I think that's it for Easter extravaganza candy. Oh, yes, this, this announcement. We need, um, in light of some of these things, a parking team. I mentioned this last week. We don't have a parking team per se right now. Um, if you want to head up the parking team, <laughs> come see us. Uh, we need a few people who want to help direct cars. Um, that Sunday, uh, even at extravaganza, we, we really could use some parking team people. So for all my unsocial people who want to stand alone, come on, be a part of the parking team. That would be so great. We really need some help. Um, yes. Also, uh, I want to kind of explain where we're at. This is a shift for us in the teaching series. We've been in First and Second Samuel and First Kings for a long time. Well done. Most people are like, churches can't handle more than an eight-week teaching series. I beg to differ. You guys are doing great. We've been in these books for a very long time, and here's what we're doing. Um, we're doing this series of Prophets and Kings. I've struggled with a lot, a lot of trying to understand how, um, as after, you know, you have Joshua, after you have Judges, and you have um, Samuel, the prophet, then King Saul, I've kind of struggled myself. Like, where, where does this happen? When does this happen? Who's the prophet during this king's era? How does this work? We try to provide this to help you. This is brand new. This is now kingdom divided. So if hopefully when you walked in, you got this little pamphlet. Here's the idea. We try to look at it like this. Um, kingdom united, the story of the gospel when the nation of Israel was one. Now we're seeing here in the chapter we're going to look at today, kingdom divided. This is where the 12 tribes split up. This is where the sons of Abraham have a disagreement. Ten tribes move to the north, two tribes to the south. It's kind of a heartbreaking story, obviously. Um, and I want to try to paint a picture so you know, like, how does this work? And who, who is the king in the north? Who's the king in the south? What era? What prophet went where? This should hopefully help if you want to look at this more in depth, great. I just, you know, Taylor, can we thank Taylor Grippo for making this and putting this together? That was so sweet. So good. But 1 Kings 12 through all the way to 2 Chronicles, we want you to see like the big picture. Um, I do believe that the story of the gospel is seen throughout the scriptures. Jesus said, when you read the scriptures, they speak of me. The scriptures refer to even these portions of scripture, the, the prophets, the kings. So we're walking through that. Um, we're going to see now in this chapter two different kingdoms, sadly. The kingdom is going to split. We're going to see why that happened and how that happens. Now, I want to make it really clear. Uh, you have David, Solomon. Solomon's son is Rehoboam. Rehoboam is the king. We're going to see him be the king of the, uh, over Judah or the southern kingdom. So Rehoboam, he's the king over the, it's called the southern kingdom or the kingdom of Judah. These are two tribes, primarily Judah and Benjamin. Then you're going to see this guy today being introduced, or he was introduced in chapter 11 last week, but his name is Jeroboam. Uh, they're not related, but they sound alike. Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Jeroboam is going to be the king of the north, the northern kingdom. This is also called Israel, um, the kingdom of Israel. This is where it gets kind of confusing. Like I thought it's all, like yes, this is where it splits, and the northern kingdom is called um, Israel, and then you have the southern kingdom of Judah. So you have the ten tribes in the north, and I think we have a picture of the map. Um, the two tribes in the south, Jerusalem is going to be the capital of the south. That's where the temple is. That's where the priests are. That's where God's presence is. And then you're going to see the northern kingdom kind of make up their own priests in this chapter, their own um, priesthood, their own sacrificial system, their own gods even. And you're going to see them eventually have their own capital, and they're going to have the um, capital of Samaria. 
So here's the idea. The big picture is this. Sadly, these kingdoms split off in this chapter. You're going to see the northern kingdom be in existence for about 200 plus years. Eventually, the Assyrians are going to take them over, bring them into their land. The southern kingdom, they're going to basically be a kingdom for about 300 plus years. And then you're going to see the Babylonians eventually take them into captivity. So in case you've ever wondered the big picture or how does this work, we're hopefully going to walk through this. Does that make sense in some ways? Does it help a little bit? My hope is that you kind of see the big picture of this. Um, sadly, we'll put up the list too. The northern kingdom, they have about 19 kings, all of them evil. Okay. <laughs> so there's just going to be a lot of evil king study. Get ready. I don't know. Just You're like, I thought it's been intense. It just gets more intense. Um, we're going to see the 19 kings of the northern kingdom. Jehu's kind of like good for a little bit, but then he ends up being evil in the eyes of the Lord. Um, normally, I'll say this phrase, like he was evil in the eyes of the Lord, or they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Um, if they're righteous, they, it will say something to the effects of they are like their father David. Um, that's kind of how it plays out. The southern kingdom, you have about 20 kings, uh, and you have about five good kings, all right? About five out of 20. There's a few mix, you know, like, okay, they did good for a little bit, and then they usually fell, and then they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Um, this is, it's kind of sad. It's like heartbreaking. You're like, so much hope, like, maybe this one will be good, and then usually not. Um, but there's about five good kings. There seems to be about five different revivals that happen, uh, and I'm, I'm bringing this out because the southern kingdom lasts a little bit longer, my point of us even looking at this is, and this has kind of been a theme, and maybe you know this already, but whether it's a good king or evil king, it really creates a longing for the true king. That's kind of the whole point of this. When you have an evil king, you're going, oh, will there ever be a good king? And it's like, yes, King Jesus. When you have a, a picture of a good king, like, yes, look at this king. There's revival happening in the land. Yes, it's another taste of Jesus. Um, and so there's, I, we can learn from this too. Romans talks about this. It says like, hey, this was written for our learning, for our instruction. So we want to learn. We want to study this. If you're like, why are you doing this? Because this is God's word and it still speaks to us and it still moves in lives. So um, our hope is to walk through this so you can get the big picture. Cool? Yes? Are you guys with me on kind of the flow of this? So here's the idea today. Today we're going to see Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, make incredibly stupid choices, listen to really bad advice, and the kingdom's going to split. It was prophesied in the chapter before. If you read the rest of the chapter, we asked you on social media to read the rest of the chapter. Chapter 11, there's a prophecy. Uh, the prophet Ahijah comes up and speaks to Jeroboam and says, Jeroboam, you're going to take 10 of the kingdoms or 10 of the tribes. You're going to rule the north. And he essentially says, if you serve the Lord, God will bless you and pour out his favor on you like David. Jeroboam doesn't do that though. But he does get the 10 tribes. He does lead Israel, the northern kingdom. And we're going to see this separation happen in this chapter. Now, here's the main idea to me. It is very clear. You have one man named Rehoboam who's building his kingdom on man's wisdom. You have another guy named Jeroboam who's building his own kingdom and his own religion even. He offers a new religion. So the title today is Man-Made Wisdom and Man-Made Religion. Man-Made Wisdom and Man-Made Religion. We still build our lives off of man-made wisdom and sadly off of man-made religion. And we want to learn from this. We want to look at this. We're going to look at the whole chapter. So um, I'm just going to pray because we're going to read a lot of verses in a little bit. Don't worry. But I, my hope is that as we kind of enter into this next season of kingdom divided, we're about to see how and why the kingdom split. Um, my hope, you guys, we will, by the way, probably on social media say, re read this portion. We'll probably try to give you more of a big picture. So we'll probably promote some verses and chapters to read at home and come and give context to that. So just want to fill you in on that. But let's do this. Let's pray. Um, I want this to be more than, isn't that interesting? Or I want this to be more than a Bible study. Obviously, the hope is that, God, would you show up? Would you bring application? Would you bring encouragement, conviction? 
Um, what is it you want to show us? What is it you want to do? So let's just do that. Let's pray. Just give this time to the Lord. Father, we just want to thank you that we get to do this, that we get to be here, that we get to open up your book freely, God, and we just ask that you would speak. We do believe this is the very breath of you, God, that, Lord, um, your word is living and active, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it, God, it can pierce and discern and get between my soul, my spirit. God, bring fruit, bring application, bring life change. Jesus, we ask that you would just be uh, honored in this, that you'd be glorified, and that, Jesus, um, you would save. Help us to learn from these kings who, who thought they didn't need you or thought they could do it themselves. God, we just ask that you would speak to us in a very profound way, that you'd open eyes and hearts to believe on Jesus whom you have sent. And we ask this in your wonderful name. Amen. Here in 1 Kings 12, we see some of the worst advice ever given, and it's also taken. It's received. I mean, this advice is so bad, it divides the kingdom. There's old men speaking wisdom to Rehoboam, we're going to read about. There's young men speaking unwise things to him, and he of course, he listens to his friends. He listens to the young, unwise men. And this advice is so bad. From here, this point on, the kingdom is split just because he listened to some bad advice. I don't know if you've ever um, given bad advice or ever received bad advice. I don't know if you've ever had like a life decision and you're like, that was not good advice. I was trying to talk to different people this week and like kind of go, man, have you ever had that? Have you ever given that? And like, oh my God, that's a terrible advice. Um, I, I was thinking back to just my growing up in those very pivotal years, like 13, 14. Back when I was in eighth grade, we had this friend who's a legend to this day in our friend group. His name was Josh Pimienta. Um, I don't know if you can find him on social media, so don't even try to look. But this guy was a legend to us. Um, he was the type of friend that whatever you told him to do, he would do, right? That's not a, it's, it's, it's bad when you have a friend like that. Whatever we said, Josh, you should probably do this. Oh, he did it. Like he was the guy, and this was during the early 2000s when there, the TV shows were not so good. It's just people kind of doing extreme things and maybe you know what I'm talking about. But we would basically like, Josh, what if you got in that, you know, shopping cart and we ran as fast as we could into the curb and just see what happens. And we would do that. Josh was that guy. He's like, yeah, I'll do it. Like we shaved off his eyebrows. We lit his hair on fire. I mean, if we could find an, 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 a bug or maybe even like a small animal, we're like, hey, you should eat this. Jo Josh was just that guy. It was, it, it was not okay. I'm sorry. I'm just confessing my eighth grade sins to you. And eventually, you're kind of like, I felt bad. Like my friend's like, you know, you don't, I don't know, man, 13-year-old boys, 14, I don't know if we have a brain. I really don't know if we have a brain yet. It's like kind of there. And you're like, I don't, I honestly don't know how he survived. We, we had him jump off second-story buildings into like ponds that were like three feet deep. And I don't know, he'd always come out somewhat okay. Um, but Josh was just the guy. There was a few times he'd be laying on the ground after he did something really idiotic that we asked him to do. And he'd just be moaning. And I'd be like, Josh, you don't have to keep doing this, man. Like, we already, you're already a legend. Like, you don't have to. And we, we just try to talk him out of it. And it, it's like, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. We were terrible. Gave bad advice. And he listened to it. This is what Rehoboam's doing. His friends say it. Like when the old men speak, no, I'm not going to listen. But what do my buddies say? I'm all in. That's what's happening here. And I want to be really clear on this again, because this is to me fascinating. Here's what I find fascinating about this. After Solomon, the wisest king, you have his son, Rehoboam. It's really the only son we know of Solomon named by, given by name. Even though he had 700 wives, 300 concubines, we know Rehoboam. Dad wrote a lot of Bible, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, a lot of wisdom, he actually writes in Proverbs over and over again, my son, my son, my son. In my mind, I'm trying to envision Rehoboam, who probably didn't take a lot of that advice from his own dad. My son. 
and you see this being given to him. And here's what I'm trying to bring up. Still to this day, we see so many books, so much content is either about man's philosophy, man's wisdom, or religion. It's interesting to me when I'm like New York Times bestsellers, or I'm like trying to read about certain books, a lot of books out there are very uh, philosophical in nature or maybe more self-help. They're offering you a lot of wisdom and a lot of advice. Here's how to do your life. Here's how to live. Some of it might be helpful, right? Then there's a lot of books that are religious or spiritual in nature. And you see these certain authors that like are people like we, Deepak Chopra and like we cling to, and you see people going to these certain authors. My point of bringing this up is still to this day, sadly, we have a lot of people who build their lives off of man-made wisdom and off of man-made religion. And I still think that these two kingdoms, like right after Solomon, these, these two individuals have their own two kingdoms and they're both building on the wrong foundation. One is building off the wisdom and philosophy of man. One is building off the religion of man. One basically is trying to get people to work and be enslaved to their work. Uh, one is trying to get them to be an enslaved to religion. And my point of this is like God has neither in mind for us. There is a better alternative. But sadly, we still see this. I mean, again, it's fascinating to me. The books out there, spiritual books or self-help books, you see this idea of like man's wisdom and you see this idea of like man's religion. And you have Rehoboam who represents man's wisdom, Jeroboam who represents man-made religion. So I want to like look at this and walk through this. Can we do that? You guys ready? So here's what we're going to do. Number one is this. Uh, <coughs> we're going to see two points today. Building on the wisdom of man. Number two is building on the religion of man. Building on the wisdom of man, building on the religion of man. We'll walk through this. We're going to read the whole thing right now. Okay, so you, you can do it. Uh, verse 1 through 24, and then we'll read verse 25 through 33 after that point. All right, so verse 1 through 24. You guys ready? Here we go. I know you can do it. 24 verses. <coughs> Rehoboam, he went to Shechem. So remember, his father just died. Solomon, end of the chapter, he died. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard it, uh, for he was still in Egypt, Jeroboam's in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon. Solomon wanted to kill him because he heard that he might take ten of the kingdoms. Then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, they said, your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He, Rehoboam, said to them, go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Verse six, then King Rehoboam took counsel with old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was uh, yet still alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them, and speak good words to them when you answer them. Then they will be your servants forever. But he ab abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, this is what they said, Thus you shall you speak to this people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. We'll explain that later. Verse 11, and now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions, which is a type of whip. Verse 12. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said, come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him. 
And he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. That happened in 11. Verse 16. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David, in you, in Judah? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to, to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who had lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. The IRS showed up, and they didn't want to pay their taxes. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel had been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. That's it. Israel had been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Verse 20. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. Israel referring to these 10 tribes. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. And we'll see Benjamin. Verse 30, uh, 21. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. He said, say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin and to the rest of the people, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man returned to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again, according to the word of the Lord. All right, we'll walk through this. Here's the first thing I want you to see. Um, we do see a, building, a man who built his kingdom on the wisdom of man. He built his life on the wisdom of man. Now, let me explain to you, obviously, the scenario. You just read it. You just heard it. But let's just kind of recap a little bit. Uh, they said, hey, great. You're about to be king. He goes to Shechem, by the way. This is interesting. Um, Rehoboam goes to Shechem to be inaugurated as king. That's in the north. He probably realized relationship with the north is not as good. Let me be anointed king in the north. That's like fascinating. That's like, I don't know, uh, the president getting no votes in a certain state. He's like, let me go to that state to kind of be inaugurated as the president. Like, I want to go there. I want to start a good rapport. So he goes to Shechem to be anointed king. And they said, hey, hey, listen. You want to be our king? Lighten our load. It's too heavy. Lighten our load. We'll serve you. We'll be all in. He's like, give me three days. Give me three days. Let me get back to you. I'll get you an answer. Now, the problem is this again. They're like, this has been too heavy. We built a lot for your dad. If you remember gold and silver, like silver is as common as stones. The temple's built. His house is built. The kingdom's being built up in Jerusalem. Solomon did a lot, but it was just taxing on the people. They're like, this is too much. We're tired. If you're going to rule us, can you just do it a little bit differently? It's kind of what we're asking. And he says, give me three days. Now, a couple of things, obviously. It's always fun to me when I see the word three days. You're hoping at the end of the three days, there will be life. You're hoping at the end of the three days, the kingdom will be united still. Instead, with this king, at the end of his third day, there's not life, there's death in a sense. There's death of this kingdom, this one kingdom. It now splits into two kingdoms. I want you to see, they're going, hey, please lighten the load for us. Here's what he did that was really wise. We have to give him his credit. Verse six says it this way. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father. Good job, right? His dad, very wise. His dad had a lot of wise men around him. He goes, you know what? This is a great desire you have. I get it. Taxes too high, work too hard. Let me just consult with my dad's wise guys, his wise men around him. He goes to them. They give him really good advice, right? They're like, hey, if you will lighten the load, if you will make it easy, remove that yoke, if you serve them, they will serve you. 
Before I look at his advice, I want to give him credit, which is he took counsel in wise men. Listen, if you are in a state or position in life where you need to make a tough choice, it's very good to do this first part. Like, seek out wise counsel. Actually, his dad told him to do this, in a sense, over and over again. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 14, he says, Where there is no counsel, you guys know this, the people fall. But the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Like, good for you, Rehoboam. You're in like a very, the kingdom could still be united by how you respond to this. And the multitude of counselors, there is safety. There is something about saying, let me go to some people who, through life experience, matched up with the word of God. Like they know the word, they live the word, there's fruit in their life. Let me go to men and women, a multitude of counselors, and let me get their advice. Hey, there's safety in that. His dad also wrote this in Proverbs 15. Without counsel, plans fail. But with many advisors, they succeed. I want you to see, like, this is so good. His dad said this, gave a lot of different ideas. Like, that, yes, I'm in. I'm going to seek out advisors. I have to give him credit. And their answers to him, to me, it's brilliant. They're like, listen, um, and this is the third generation. What your grandpa David did was great. What Solomon did and, like, extended our kingdom and we have favor now with the Australian nations is great. Don't blow it. <laughs> I'm not trying to make this point too much, but there's something about, like, your parents or your grandparents, they built up something, now it's handed to you. How do you not squander it? How do you use it? How do you use it wisely? How do you go to other people and say, give me advice on how to use what my dad built, my grandpa built? Give me, this, is what, this is essentially what he's doing. I need advice. I need wisdom. Speak to me. He goes to them. Good job. But he, and their advice is spot on. Serve the people and they will serve you. I'll put the verse up here, verse seven. If you will be a servant to this people and serve them and speak good words to them. I love that. Speak good words to them. When you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. They're saying, you want them to follow you? Be a servant. We see this throughout scripture, this idea of servant leadership a lot. Um, But I want to see this so clearly spoken here. If you want the kingdom to be united, you need to serve your people. I cannot stress this enough of how important it is and how challenging it is for leaders, and this is kind of intimidating to say this, but just to be a servant. To say, I'm not here to be served, but to serve. Is this not what Jesus said over and over again? In Mark chapter 10, Jesus said the same thing. He goes, the greatest one among you is the, the servant of all. I have not come to be served, but to serve. This is essentially what Je- Jesus was the Rehoboam they, they wanted. They wanted a king who would serve them. Jesus like, hey, I'll do that. Jesus is exactly, he fits exactly what the people were looking for. I love that about Jesus. I'm very thankful for that. You know, uh, this week we saw the movie Jesus Revolution. All right, I'm just going to it's funny. I was so on the fence about going to this movie. I was like, ah, okay, I'm just gonna be honest. There's a few things. One, sometimes I'm a little bit overly maybe critical of Christian movies, and that's probably, I gotta, God has to work on my heart. I'll get there, I'm like, yeah, let's see it. And then the acting, you're like, I don't want to see this anymore. So I'm a little bit critical at times. Two, um, I had to be aware of this, right? I, I don't, I didn't want to be the annoying, self-righteous guy to see this movie about Chuck Smith and the Jesus Revolution and be like, Chuck's not like that. Like, I don't want to be like that, right? Many of you know, like, that was our pastor growing up. I love that guy. Very thankful for that guy. I didn't want to see the movie and be annoying. So I was like, I don't know. I, shouldn't, I probably should just avoid it. That's kind of my thought. I should probably just not see it. Well, I text my group. I'm like, you know what? Let's go see it. So we saw it as a small group on Wednesday night. And you have, like, seven men, in the, you know, in this row watching this movie. And we're all, like, trying not to cry and look at each other. It was great. We're, like, <laughs> like looking over and, like, tears. It, honestly, if you, if you just listen, if you want to go see a movie and cry for a couple hours, go see Jesus Revolution. That's honestly how it felt. Am I right? Guys, am I smart? Come on. Don't, you're lying if not. Um, it, was, it was so beautiful. Here's a couple things. Um, a couple of things you see is like, man, there were so many parallels between their day and our day. 
You have a country that's really divided. You have a country where it's like the Vietnam War and this president's assassinated and Martin Luther King Jr. You see like all this sadness in the country, all this division in the country. You have the church that's like, I don't know if we want those people in here, right? And you're just reminded of just how beautiful it is when someone's like, if you're not going to open up your doors, who is? And you have this like desire of like, okay, let's, let's bring him in. And, and there's little moments and these little conversations in the movie where you go, that is so beautiful. Like, yes, and I don't know, I'll just say this. There's something about it when you're watching, like, yes, Lord, just do it again. If you've seen it, or hopefully you go see it, honestly now, you just go, do it again. God, you did it then, you can do it now. God, if you did it then, in a moment where the country is really divided, of course you can do it today. Please do it today. Pour out your spirit. If what's happening right now in Asbury, Kentucky, or Asbury University, it starts there, great, bring it here. I love that at the end of the movie, they show how the Jesus Revolution didn't just start in Southern California, but it spread across the country. And you're like, yeah, I don't care if it starts here or not. Just bring it here. Like, I would love for it to start here, but I'm okay with it also coming here. Like, yes, Lord, do it again. In the movie, there's a scene where you, and this is like kind of a, a, tr- a true story somewhat, but you have in the movie the scene where the hippies are coming in, they're not wearing their shoes, and you have like this small kind of old school church, and like, Chuck, they're gonna get the carpet dirty. And he's like, oh, they're gonna get the carpet dirty. In the next scene, you just see him, what? We see him like washing the feet of everyone walking in, and you have all like the board members and everyone walking in, like kind of grumpy, like, oh, we're about the carpet, and Chuck's washing their feet. And it was such a beautiful moment of like, yes, when you see a servant leader like that, that is something so beautiful. I will say, like, you know, the, the OG most likely, you know, part of the story was he's like, well, if they're going to make the carpet dirty, let's just rip out the carpet. I love that answer too. If they're going to make the carpet dirty, we'll just rip out the carpet. It does not matter. The point of that is why did that stick with me or so many people I'm sure who saw that? You're going, there's something about a leader who loves his people and serves his people, right? I'm very thankful for that. I've mentioned that before with him. I'm very thankful for the heart of like picking up trash every day from four to five on campus and serving his people that way. My point of bringing all of that up is the wisdom of these old men to Rehoboam was genius. You serve them. You speak good things to them, and you serve them. They're going to serve you back. Really wise words. Doesn't listen to it. There's something profound about serving. Moms and dads, there's something profound about serving. Follower of Jesus, there's something profound about serving. I love what David Mathis said, and listen to this. Or sorry, Daniel Aiken. He said, Before Christ redeems us and sets us free, we are like crack addicts addicted to ourselves. We are like alcoholics intoxicated with ourselves. We are not as interested in serving as in being served, in giving as in receiving, in pursuing God's way as in getting our way, in being the least as in being the greatest. So true. Before Jesus, you're like intoxicated with yourself. You're addicted to yourself. And there's something about Jesus, the person of Jesus, who goes, wait, he is the greatest leader who did not, he deserves to be served, and yet he came to serve. If anyone should be served, it's Jesus. And yet he's coming to earth to serve. I did not come to be served, but to serve. And then as a follower of Jesus, he goes, okay, this is the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is not how can I just receive, it's how can I give. Not how can I be served, but how can I serve. The, the, the men's wisdom, the old men's wisdom here, and it says the old men, the wisdom they offered was profound. Be a servant. Be a servant. Serve your people. I want to read this one more thing. It's by Richard Foster. He wrote a book called The Celebration of Discipline. It's a very profound book. He said, humility is worked into our lives through the discipline of service. Listen, nothing disciplines the inordinate desires of the flesh like service. And nothing transforms the desires of the flesh like serving in hiddenness. The flesh whines against service, but screams against hidden service. 
It strains and pulls for honor and recognition. It will devise subtle, religiously acceptable means to call attention to the service rendered. If we stoutly refuse to give in to this lust of the flesh, we crucify it. Every time we crucify the, cl- the flesh, we crucify our pride and arrogance. There's something about serving, you're like, that's hard, but serving with no recognition, that's really hard. Serving when no one says thank you. You know, we've had a few of those moments where it's like, I've been serving for two months and no one said thank you. And I'm like, first of all, I'm sorry, that's not a good culture. I don't want, to, I don't want that kind of culture. I want a, a culture of gratefulness and thankfulness. I'm, but when I hear that, I'm like, that's kind of weird. <laughs> I've been serving for like a month and no one said thank you. I'm like, I'm so sorry, thank you. However, can I challenge you in your heart posture right now? Like, there's something about, there's something about that. My point of this is just saying, hey, if you want the people to follow, be the servant. Jesus did this. Jesus lived this. It was so attractive. Why did the multitudes, why did the, the homeless or the poor or the broken say, I want that guy? Because he came to serve. There's something about our Jesus that Rehoboam could not fulfill. Serve the people. And this is what he does. Uh, let me see what my buddies say. <laughs> right? Okay, let's keep, let's keep going. This is what it's funny to me. He says, be a servant to the people. He's like, I don't know. So he sought wise counsel. Now let's go to this. He's going to seek worldly counselor, uh, counsel. Here's what the friends say to him in verse 10. It says, the young men who had grown up with him said to him, now let's just stop right there, right? The young men who'd grown up with him. A um, couple things. Why? It says young men. Um, he is 41. We're told that in Second King, or First Kings uh, chapter 14. We know that Rehoboam's 41 years old. It's probably taking more of a shot at him and his mindset than it is his age. And his young men who grew up with him, so they're probably in their 40s, like Rehoboam. And it's almost saying just because they're even in that state of life doesn't mean they have um, wisdom. <laughs> and the young men said to him, and here's the other idea. Um, it's probably not the best idea to run to your friends for advice in this kind of moment. There, there is something about getting an outsider's advice. I don't know. I've seen this a lot with both men and women. The idea could be like if someone maybe is in a relationship and it's like, you should just break up with him. He doesn't know you. He doesn't appreciate you. It's like, maybe that's true, but maybe they're just trying to be a good friend to you and say that thing. Like sometimes you want to get an outside perspective. And I do think there's something valuable about this outside perspective. Sometimes you want your friends who know you the deepest to give you that perspective. Absolutely. But it matters the character of the people of your friends, right? Here's the character of his friends. We'll read the verse just so you kind of get it. The character. What do they say in verse 10? My, say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. All right, I don't, I don't know if I should maybe do a deep dive into this. Um, the, the word thighs in Hebrew is truly the word loins. By the way, you'll see the word loins a lot repeated in the Old Testament. I'm not trying to make this, this the word loins is usually a, use, a euphemism for the male genitalia. The reason why I'm bringing this up is um, these are crude men. The Bible kind of shies away from it. Our interpreter's like, oh, let's just say thighs. In reality, I think it's actually weightier if you understand like, okay, the, this, they're basically saying my little fingers, you say that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Why does that, why does it matter? His friends where he's getting advice from, they're crude, they're crass, they're perverted. They're essentially not, they're not taking this position serious. They're not honoring this world. They're not honoring the people who he's speaking to. They're, they're making way too light of it in a perverted kind of a way. This is the worldly advice he's getting. Hey, say, say that to them. Yeah, say that. You know what picture guys are like, you're just, uh, it's like a frat boy kind of advice. It's just terrible. Of course, that's advice he listens to. Okay, thank you guys. Um, we do have to talk about this, right? We see this a lot in the church. I don't know how to summarize this, but this is called advice shopping. Advice shopping. What one person said to you, I don't know if I like that advice. Be a servant? That sounds kind of hard. What do you say? Use your rule of terror. Okay, like it's really funny what he does. It's like, I don't like the advice. Let me go to someone else. I, if you've ever been on that end, it's a very difficult place. If someone comes to you and says, are you speaking to me? And you're like, okay, you pray with them, you talk with them, and you hear the whole situation, and you go, here's my advice. And the advice a lot of times I think is like, this is probably counter to your flesh. You probably want me to sympathize with you, put a hand and say, it's going to be okay. But let me actually challenge your approach or challenge that way you handle that interaction. Like, I do think that oftentimes 
we'll give them hard advice. And then it's like, well, thank you, but let me go to someone else who says what I want to hear. Please just be very aware and be very careful of just going to someone for the reason of you just want to hear what you want to hear. I'm going to them because they're going to say the nice thing, the thing I really want to hear. I'm advice shopping here. That has never really been um, a good thing. I see this way too often, and maybe, you, maybe you've experienced this, someone did that to you, maybe you advice shop. I'll say this, usually if the answer is tough and has something to do with deny yourself and crucify the flesh, it's probably the right answer. If it's the answer that's like, no, 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 everyone misunderstands you and you did what was right, it's probably not. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, right? There's something about that. But he goes to these friends and they're not going to wound him. They're going to try to wound the people. Hey, you should, <laughs> we should make it really hard on the people. Again, uh, this is what they said to him. I want to bring it up this way. Um, his grandpa, David, wrote in Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. That's how the Psalms start. His grandpa is like, man, that guy is so blessed who does not listen to the counsel of the ungodly. Here's his grandson walking in the counsel of the ungodly. And it's just sad to kind of watch how that plays out. We're told in 1 Corinthians 3, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. That's what's happening. He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. If any of you thinks to be wise, he's like, "Mm, probably a fool. There's this idea that the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. There's this idea of, I know that that might seem smart, you know, your your dad was heavy, be heavier. He goes, this is just foolish foolish overall. If you would, look at verse 11. It says, this is the advice. They said, say to them, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. Obviously, this idea of a yoke is something you might put on an axe or an animal that uh, plows the fields, and it was like a yoke. It's heavy. It's binding. It it constrains them. It restricts them. And they go, you think that yoke's been bad? I'm going to put a heavier one on you. Again, what does that remind you of? Rehoboam wasn't the servant. Rehoboam added a yoke. But here's Jesus, the servant of all, who says what about the yoke? Matthew 11, Jesus said so beautifully, come to me, all those who labor and heavy laden, that's the people, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My yoke is easy. The king, the true king, goes, I want to not add to your yoke, I want to take yours and give you mine. Mine is easy. Mine is, I'm gentle and lowly. Jesus is the king. I think the people of Israel always wanted and longed for, but never made him king. Never made God king. They always wanted a man to be king. And with man comes man's ways. With man comes man's burdens. With man comes man's wisdom and philosophy. And it just added more and more to their yoke. Jesus is like, I want to lighten the load. This king, Rehoboam, is like, I'm going to add to their load. Just so sad to watch how this slowly plays out. Proverbs 15.1 says this, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Do you know what it says in verse 13? It says he answered the people harshly. He answered people harshly. It's like, you know what? Yeah, thank you, young men. Hey, guys, I'm going to do that. I'm going to make your burden so heavy, so difficult, you can't live. And, and again, his dad's like, hey, do you know a soft answer turns away wrath? Right? That's what it does. But again, verse 15, verse, uh, but a harsh word stirs up anger. This is exactly what it does. He answers with a harsh word. The people are like, no, we don't want this. Again, we see this in Proverbs 16, 18. It says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. He answers in pride. He answers with a harsh word. And what happens? The kingdom splits. He doesn't answer gently, softly. He doesn't answer with wisdom. 
He doesn't do with Jesus, take the yoke, be a servant. He's the exact opposite. And the people are like, we don't want this. Who wants this? It's just funny to me, by the way. All the old men are like, mm, be easy on them. No, don't be so heavy on the taxes, young men. More taxes! I don't know why that just fits today to me. Young people, more! Old, no, please. That's what's happening. That's what's happening. And here's what one author says. He says, we make our decisions, and then our decisions turn around and make us. He's making these decisions, and then it's defining him. Guys, his response to the people could have kept the kingdom united. There is a side of this which we will look at, which God said this would happen, but yet he's completely responsible for how he responds to the people. God's like, the kingdom's going to split. So God knows. God is over it. God proclaimed it. However, at the same time, his response really did matter. There is this unique blend of obviously God's sovereignty, our responsibility. There's a verse here in verse 15, I think that's profound. It says, the king did not listen to the people for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word. The reason why I'm bringing this up is yes, you got to see this was going to play out this way. It was. Did the Lord know? Did the Lord choose this path? Yes. (laughs) Was this his choice or did the Lord make this happen? Yeah. Okay, I just think there's a side of it where we see God saying this is going to happen and him also now basically reaping what he's sowing. That he's going to do, he's going to make these decisions, then the kingdom's going to split. We both see God's sovereignty and a responsibility. You see this idea kind of throughout scriptures. Here's the, the kind of the conclusion of the matter. After the kingdom splits, we read this, he gathers 180,000 men. He's like, let's go attack Jeroboam. Let's go attack the north. Let's reclaim this. Let's be one united nation again. God appears as Shemaiah, who's a prophet at that time. He's probably not a, a known prophet. Not a lot of people are like, oh, I don't know, know Shemaiah. We're going to see a lot of prophets now being introduced. Uh, Shemaiah is like, hey, do not do this. Do not attack your own people. He ends up listening. Good for him. He listens, and he avoids war. Now, there's a few things. We have to give him his credit. He listened to Shemaiah, avoids war. Maybe the idea is he really didn't want to go to battle and die, or his other people die, or like, what are we doing here? But here's the main idea. I try to write out this way. Um, it's not enough to obey God's word only when it's convenient. It's convenient to not go to war. Like, yeah, okay, a few. Resources, men death. We don't know if we're going to win or not. He obeys God when it probably is to his benefit. He's not going to die and the people are not going to die. And I'll say this. He's very picky and choosy with God. Do you not get this so far? Hey, wise men, you have to say, no, thank you. Young men, you want me to be that way? Let's do it. Shemaiah, don't attack. Okay, I'll do that because I don't want to die. The point is this. Um, it's not enough to obey God's word only when it's convenient. There has to be times we obey God when it's not convenient. <laughs> the, po- the point is like, yes, anyone can obey when it's convenient, when it benefits you. Being a servant didn't seem beneficial to him, but it would have. It would have. Listen, don't just obey God when you think it's convenient. Even if you think it's inconvenient, it's probably going to benefit you. Even when you think it's difficult and it's frustrating, it's still probably help. I don't want to be a servant. I actually want more taxes. I want more things. No. You, you listen to God. You listen to his men. Watch what God can do. Don't only obey only when it's convenient. I think we live in this moment. We live in a weird moment where we pick and choose what we want to be, believe about the Bible. So God says this. I like that. I'm going to do that. I don't like that. No, no. I do like this one, though. That's what he's doing. I, I don't like what the wise men said. Young men, okay. Uh, and it's just very bizarre. He's picking and choosing when he will obey God, when he'll not obey God. This never works. Here's the downfall of Rehoboam. So we're about to end with Rehoboam, move on from Rehoboam, not talk about Rehoboam. Here's what it says in 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 14. This is the big picture. 2 Chronicles, remember, it kind of mirrors these stories. So we're not always going through 2 Chronicles or 1 Chronicles because they mirror these stories. But 2 Chronicles 12, 14, it says, and Rehoboam did evil. Why? For he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. This is where he missed it. Where he goes, give me three days. Did he pray? Did he seek God? No, he sought wise men, but didn't listen. See, the whole thing is, this is Rehoboam did evil. He did not make it his way to seek the Lord in everything, his, everything he does. Listen, this is where he went wrong. I'm not going to seek the Lord in my decision making. 
Rehoboam did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So he goes down for the uh, southern kingdom as an evil king, <laughs> all right? That's kind of how his story ends. Listen, he built his life and his kingdom off of man-made wisdom. Do not build your life off of man-made wisdom or advice. There is a lot of good books out there. There's a lot of things that could benefit you, but you cannot build your life off, off sand, off things that change with the cultural moment or temperament that we're in. You cannot build your life off of that. It is not a strong foundation. That's what he did. Number two is this. We see now Jeroboam. Jeroboam builds his kingdom off of man-made religion. So number two is building on the wisdom of man. Is number one. Number two is building on the religion of man. All right, let's look at verse 25, all right? So the kingdom split. Jeroboam's made king. We already read that. Verse 25, here we go. It says, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, listen to this, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Sound familiar? Verse 29, and he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among the people who are not of the Levites. We see that the Levites actually go over to the southern kingdom. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month. In the month that he had devised from his own heart, he just made it up. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. This is fascinating to me. Um, obviously, you can't, you can't not read this and not see the story of Exodus 32. You cannot read this and see, here's this guy. Remember, where was Jeroboam? He was in Egypt. He comes out of Egypt. He's made king. And he's like, let's get calves of gold here right now. Two calves of gold, right? I try to put it this way. This is the story of Exodus all over again. Jeroboam, who spent time in Egypt, leads the people out from under the yoke of the Pharaoh-like Rehoboam. But just like the Exodus narrative, he's worshiping a golden calf that that follows deliverance. They're delivered. They're not under the yoke of the the Rehoboam-like Pharaoh. They're not under his yoke. He's out of Egypt. He's like, hey guys, I will put that yoke on you. I'll actually give you new gods. This is fascinating to me. He's basically repeating the story of Exodus. You feel like if you're a part of the nation of Israel, you're like, I think we've done this before. Like, I don't think this works out very well for us, right? There should be some warnings. But sadly, again, we have a short memory. I feel like half the Bible is basically preaching, remember, remember, remember. We forget though. We forget. We go, oh, we'll just try it again. Maybe that generation did it wrong. Well, our generation will do it right. So they do the same thing all over again. Now, a couple things I have to point out. Here's the first thing. One is, this is the, the motive. He really feared losing his power. He feared losing his power. If you actually look clearly at verse 26 and 27, he goes, oh no. Do you know what will happen? They're gonna, my people of Israel, the, the north, is going to want to go into Judah, the south, because that's where the temple is in Jerusalem. And they're going to offer sacrifices to the one true God. And their hearts are going to be going, hey, we should probably be one. And they'll probably fall in love with Rehoboam. Because they'll be worshiping the one true God. They should realize we shouldn't be divided. He goes, so know what I need to do? I need to build my own temples, my own priests, my own gods, 
my own sacrifices. He's creating a counterfeit religion. He's creating a counterfeit salvation plan. Yes, Passover. Yes, this idea of appearing and sacrificing to God, the Day of Atonement. I'll create my own thing. This is fascinating to me. This is the story of basically our day and age. The gospel is given, and then there's counterfeits of that thing. We really have to be aware of this. We do the same thing today. Things that still deal with priest-like tendencies and service and mediators, things like sacrifices, atoning for your sin. There's very similar language for, for a lot of counterfeit religions and ideologies. This is what's happening with Jeroboam. I don't want to lose my power, so I'm, in fact, instead, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build this instead. And it's really, can I point this out? This is a religion of convenience in many ways. I don't want them traveling over there. We'll just make everything here. We'll make it convenient. Don't have to travel far. They can do it. Two, Dan, Bethel, mm, we're good. We're good. We'll make it really convenient. I, dare I say that religion of convenience has come to America? <laughs> We've got to be careful. We'll make it convenient for them. We don't make it, no, let's just make it eat. Let's, we'll have more. I, my point is we have to be very aware of like these heart-like tendencies that we can play into. How do I make it convenient? How do I, how do I trick them? How do I, that's what he's doing. Listen, he was really afraid of losing his power. But I also got to be really clear here. He, um, he was also, he failed to trust God. Well, here's what I mean. Do you guys know what God said to Jeroboam? There was so much hope for Jeroboam for a moment. The prophet Ahijah shows up to Jeroboam in chapter 11. And he's like, because of Solomon's sin, God's going to give you 10 kingdoms. That's amazing. Like, you're, if you're Jeroboam, you're like, what? I'm going to get 10 kingdoms to rule? Yes. And this is what the, the prophet says to him uh, in chapter 11, verse 38. He says, if you will listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David, my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you. This is what God says to Jeroboam. God's like, Jeroboam, if you will follow after David, the first king, really, over this whole nation. If you'll fall after my statutes, if you'll fall after those ways, I'm going to build you a sure house. Like, it will not end. Like, I'm going to bless you more than you can imagine, Jeroboam. And rather than trusting God and his promise, he gets fearful of losing his power. He's like, I, I don't want to trust what, I don't want to trust this. I'd rather do my own thing than trust God. It's essentially, I'll rather build my own religion, my own style, my own version. I'd rather do all of that than trust God. Obviously, this is repeated in so many ways. I'd rather do my own thing than trust God. Sure, God promises me life and life everlasting or fullness of joy or the power of the Spirit. Sure, there's all these promises for, for, from God for us today, but I'd rather just trust myself. I'd rather just do my own thing. I'm going to forsake the word of the Lord for the sake of the fear of losing my power, my authority, because that means I have to give someone else authority, his word, his direction. How often do we sacrifice God's word or God's ways because we just want to keep our ways? We want to think we're in control. This is what he's doing. It's so sad. He, he failed to trust God. And here's the thing. In the process, he built a counterfeit God, temple, sacrifices, priests, atonement. Like, I want you to think about this. Look at, notice what he does. He's, he's kind of a genius. The enemy's smart, man. The enemy, when he creates a counterfeit, it looks just like the real thing. Because look at this. There, he changed the object of worship, golden calves, he changed the place of worship, Jerusalem, to two different areas. He changed the means of worship, all provide new priests, not from the Levites, new priests. He changed the heart of worship. What does that mean? This is fascinating to me. It's on the 15th day of the eighth month. Why is that fascinating? Because on the 15th day of the seventh month was Passover. One month later, he's like, you know what? We're going to have our own day. 
Sure, Passover reminds you how we came out of Egypt and God delivered us from slavery and bondage. Sure, it reminds us that our sins have been atoned for because blood was shed and blood was placed. Blood was placed on the doorposts. Because of that, we're now made right with God because blood was shed. Blood was applied. And we're now right with God. But one month later, on the 15th day of the eighth month, not the 15th day of the seventh month, Passover, but on the 15th day of the eighth month, we're going to have our own thing. And he changes the heart of worship. Here's the idea. He's trying to erase the salvific grace of God that was offered in the Passover. Listen, he's trying to erase the salvific grace of God that was offered to the people in the Passover. The Passover was this beautiful demonstration that there will be a lamb who will be innocent and slain and blood will be shed. Because of this innocent life being given, you will now, because of blood being shed, you will now forgiveness of sins. Because of, without the shed of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And he's basically saying, I'm going to erase this whole story, all that God has done, and offer you a new story one month later here in our own land. And I, here's what I think. Um, when we see the gospel of Jesus, there's so many counterfeits that look so similar, but the devil is in the details in that way. <laughs> and, the, and the small little things he changes, the nuances, the, the, the reason I want to bring this up, here's what it says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed." As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. There is such a strong word in the New Testament that, listen, whenever there's good news, there's going to be counterfeit versions of that good news. Can I tell you the gospel? The gospel is clearly laid out in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 and 4. Paul says, this is the gospel, that Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures and rose the third day according to the scriptures. The reason why I say that is like it is so clear the gospel, Jesus, you died for my sins. Your blood was shed for my sins. The scriptures prophesied that. You fulfill that. Thank you that scriptures have weight and authority, and you fulfilled the scriptures. And you rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. That, yes, death did not keep you. You rose again. And this is how I have favor with God. This is how now I can be in heaven or have eternal life with God because of what Jesus Christ did for me. His death, his resurrection, yes, I believe. Yes, I receive. And then we have different distortions of the gospel. We have things like Mormonism that says, let me tell you another gospel. Jesus actually appeared to people in South America. No, I'm sorry. Jesus is the half-brother of Lucifer. No, I'm sorry. Or Jehovah's Witnesses, right? This idea, Jesus is Michael the Archangel. He's a created being. He's not God in the flesh. No, I'm sorry. There's always these distortions of the gospel. We see it in, in South Florida in different ways. We could see it in things like the Hebrew Israelites, the Hebrew Roots Movement, believe in Jesus and keep Torah, believe in Jesus and do this, we're told to make disciples of all nations and to teach the things all that Jesus commanded. My point being, we, you see these variations of the gospel that creep into the church and we have to be very aware of it. We have to say, that's not the gospel. That's believe in Jesus and. Paul says, I through the law died to the law so that I might live to God. There's this idea that now you have, you're not married to this, you're married to another to him who was raised from the dead. Jesus we, we cling to the person of Jesus, his work, his death, his resurrection, his atonement, what he did. It's your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus. My, again, my point of bringing all this up is new temple, new sacrifices, new priests, so many similarities. It could feel like, but this feels pretty good, and we're doing a lot, but it's not the same. 
He's erasing the salvific act of Passover, which reveals the grace of God. And Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5 says, when Christ, who is our Passover lamb, Christ is our, he's the one who says, let me remind you, the Passover speaks of Jesus. Because of him, the lamb of God, who was slain for our sin innocently, and his blood is applied to us, now God passes over. Thank you, Lord. You pass over my sins because of that Passover lamb, Jesus. All of this speaks of Jesus. And the point is, he's going, no, no, you're, you're providing a counterfeit. This is not, this is a man-made thing. I think this is very profound because, again, we build our lives, sadly, off of man's wisdom or man-made religion. And it's, it's just a counterfeit, the real thing, and we cannot be, like, we cannot get caught up in that or we cannot lose sight of that. It is so simple. Do not be, be deceived by the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. There's a beautiful simplicity in the gospel of Jesus. And we're the ones who try to add to that and don't add to that. If anyone brings you another gospel, don't let anyone bring you another gospel. It's 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Rose again according to the scriptures. Yes, amen. The gospel, so free. Don't complicate it. Here's what I want to point out lastly. Jeroboam, in a weird way, is like a weird, bad, broken type of Jesus. Because here's why. I try to write out this way. Jeroboam fled to Egypt because of a jealous king who tried to kill him. Jeroboam is declared king, and he offers a new but counterfeit salvation and priesthood. Listen, Jesus also fled to Egypt, remember when he's a baby, because of a jealous king who tried to kill him. Jesus is declared king as well, but on the cross, the king of the Jews, he's declared king, and he offers a new but true salvation and fulfills the priesthood. He's the Rehoboam, the one who took our yoke, the one who served. He's the better Rehoboam. He's the better Jeroboam, the one who came out of Egypt to lead his people into deliverance, but it didn't really. Jesus did that in a real way. came out of Egypt to set us free. Jesus is a better version of all these. All these kings are we reading from here on out, whether through the brokenness and evil or through the righteousness, you go, oh, it is crazy. It's longing for Jesus. A better Rehoboam, a better Jeroboam. Yes, do not build your life on man-made wisdom or man-made religion. It will always fail. Build your life on King Jesus. Listen, if you want to know King Jesus, we'd love to invite you to know King Jesus, to accept Jesus, put your faith in Jesus, to trust in Jesus, to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Look to that Jesus. We want you to know this Jesus. We want to invite you into relationship with Jesus. I'm going to do something. I just want to pray, and then I'm going to have a, a couple of announcements. Let's just pray. Father, we just want to thank you again. There is no one like you. That though the world tries to create counterfeit versions of you and of what you've done and your sacrifice and your atonement, Jesus, um, we thank you that we have the true gift, the true salvation that's found in you. That God, this kingdom was divided because of just bad advice that was given and obeyed. And Jesus, we're told in Ezekiel 37 that it should no longer be two kingdoms but one. And we do believe, and I thank you, that on the cross, Jesus, you can undo, and you did undo, all the things these kings did. That Jesus, we are neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, Gentile uh, nor Jew, just slave nor free. We are all one in you, Jesus. And we just want to say thank you. That there is no one like you. We just want to praise you now, God. We just want to thank you now. In your precious name, Jesus. Amen.